who is Jesus? As we're going to learn from our passage tonight, the way we answer this question is fundamental to our identity and our eternal destiny. Historians overwhelmingly agree that Jesus was a real historical figure. In fact, many secularists and deists like Thomas Jefferson, for example, would agree with us that Jesus was a great moral teacher. Others, including Muslims, would go even farther and say that Jesus was a great man and a prophet. All of these things are true, but they don't tell us the single most important thing about Jesus. Both Christ and his first followers confessed that Jesus was the only Son of God, that he took on human flesh, that he lived a perfect life, and that he died in order to take away the sin of all those who would follow him. Jesus' identity is fundamental to the Christian faith, and it's the subject of our passage tonight. Our passage comes from the Gospel of John, which was written by John, the Apostle of Jesus. John's Gospel was written after the other three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and it draws heavily from their factual account of Jesus' life. We don't know if John the Apostle was spurred to write his gospel by a particular historical event or a particular development in the life of the early church, but we do know the reason that John the Apostle wrote his gospel. We know this because John himself tells us that reason in chapter 20, verses 30 to 31, when he's describing Jesus' resurrection from the dead and his appearances before his disciples. John says that these things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. That is the central argument of John's gospel and the central argument of Christianity. The Bible teaches us that even though we are all sinners under the threat of God's just wrath, God, in order to bring glory to his name and because of his great love for us, sent his son Jesus to dwell on the earth as a man. Jesus lived the perfect life that none of us could live. He died to take on the punishment that our sins deserved. And he rose from the dead three days later to reign at God's right hand. John's gospel proclaims that if we trust in Christ's work on our behalf, and if we turn away from our sin and towards Christ in faith and repentance, we are forgiven of our sins and we receive eternal life. As we learned this morning when our brother Deepak preached from Psalm 85, The Lord forgives the iniquity of his people and covers all their sin. Our passage this evening from John chapter 1, verse 29, picks up on this theme. But before we dive into verse 29, let's briefly summarize what's happened so far in the first chapter of John's gospel. Verses 1 through 28 introduce us to two central characters, Jesus and John the Baptist. We learn that the first character, Jesus, has existed, to get, has existed for all of eternity, together with God the Father and God the Holy Spirit. Working in concert with the other two persons of the Godhead, Jesus created the universe, the earth, and all they contain, including the first man and woman. After mankind rebelled against God's authority by sinning against him, Jesus took on human flesh and came to live among men and women to repair the damage that sin had done. Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit and then lived on the earth as a real physical human being. John chapter 1 tells us that not everyone who met Jesus in his time or today accepted him as the Son of God, but to everyone who did, he gave new life and the right to become children of God. 
The other central character of John chapter 1 is John the Baptist, who was a prophet appointed by God to prepare the way for Jesus' ministry. John baptized his followers in water as a symbol or type for what Jesus would accomplish through his ministry. John's act of physically cleansing his borrowers through water baptism pointed them toward the spiritual cleansing from sin that Jesus would accomplish. When news of John spread to Jerusalem, the religious leaders there sent messengers to John to find out who he was and to ask him about his ministry. As always, John responded by pointing his listeners to Jesus. Which brings us to our verse for tonight. Please follow along as I read John chapter 1, verse 29, which you can find on page 886 of the Bibles provided. John chapter 1, verse 29, on page 886. The next day he, John the Baptist, saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. This is obviously a dramatic proclamation by John, so let's pause for just a moment and consider exactly what John is claiming here about Jesus. John begins by describing the person and role of Jesus. He tells his hearers to behold the Lamb of God. For John's first century Jewish audience, the phrase Lamb of God would have immediately brought to mind the events of the first Passover. In the book of Exodus, before God rescued the people of Israel from slavery in Egypt, he sent ten plagues against the Egyptians to demonstrate his power and his devotion to Israel. The last and most severe plague was the death of every firstborn child in Egypt. Before sending the plague, God promised Moses that the people of Israel would be spared if they sacrificed a lamb and placed its blood on the doorposts of their houses. God would see the blood, would pass over the door, and would not allow anyone in the house to be harmed. The Hebrews did as God commanded, and their children were spared. And so the blood of the Passover lamb, both figuratively and literally, rescued the people of Israel from death. And in the same way, John the Baptist is proclaiming that the blood of Jesus will preserve the eternal lives of all those who place their faith in him. After proclaiming that Jesus is the Son of God, John also proclaims that Jesus takes away the sin of the world. This statement refers to Jesus' substitutionary atonement in which his perfect life is credited to all those who place their faith in him. The punishment that we as Christians deserve has been poured out on him as our substitute. In making this point, John the Baptist says that Jesus takes away the sin of the world to emphasize that Christ's sacrifice is sufficient for any person from any background with any sin who will believe in him. Jesus, the Lamb of God, offered himself as propitiation for the sin of the whole world, that is, for people of any nation, people, group, or language who would believe in him. And so the message of John 1.29 is relatively clear. Jesus is the Son of God made flesh, and because of his life and death on our behalf, anyone who turns from their sin and places their faith in him will enjoy eternal life in heaven instead of eternal death in hell. John calls us to behold Jesus, to trust that he is the Lamb of God, and to have our sin taken away. Now, for people who are Christians, for those who have already trusted in Christ, how does beholding Jesus, the Lamb of God, change the way that we live? 
Well, we could go on about this for a very long time, but let's briefly consider three ways in which beholding Jesus affects us in the here and now. First, beholding Jesus motivates us to tell others about him the same way that his apostles did. The passage that we read tonight actually isn't the first time that John the Baptist had met Jesus. The other Gospels record that John had previously baptized Jesus. And John himself appears to talk about this event in chapter 1, verses 32 to 34, just after the passage we read tonight. In verses 32 through 34, John says, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. After the incredible things that he had seen and experienced, John couldn't help but proclaim the good news about Jesus to those around him. Now, to be sure, John is a unique figure in redemptive history. He saw Jesus in the flesh, unlike us, and he devoted his entire adult life to preparing the way for him. But personal evangelism doesn't require us to be prophets like John, or to live the ascetic lifestyle he lived, or to be well-spoken, or to have an encyclopedic knowledge of the Bible. Sometimes the best thing we can do to equip ourselves for, for personal evangelism is simply to behold the beauty of Christ and to interact with him on his terms. When people see our joy in Christ and how great and enduring it is, they can be assured that our faith is real and that they can experience the same joy for themselves. In fact, that's exactly what happens in the rest of John chapter 1. In verses 37 through 42, we see the apostle Andrew begin to follow Jesus and then tell his brother, the apostle Peter, about him. After Andrew tells Peter that we have found the Messiah, Peter begins following Jesus too, and the rest is history. Then in verses 43 through 51, we see the apostle Philip begin following Jesus. After Philip correctly recognizes that Jesus is the Messiah, he tells his friend Nathanael, we have found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote. The scene ends with Nathanael also meeting Jesus and confessing, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. Andrew and Philip had probably just met Jesus for the first time, but when they correctly proclaimed him as the Christ, God awakened the hearts of Peter and Nathanael, and they believed as well. A second way that beholding Jesus strengthens Christians is that it empowers us to fight sin in our own lives. The Bible is very clear that Jesus did not come into the world simply to remove the punishment for our sin. He sent Jesus to do away with our sin, gradually in this life and then completely in the next. Ephesians 2.10 teaches us that we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. There is no category in the Bible for a person who becomes a Christian and then goes on living as if nothing has changed. Instead, when we genuinely repent and place our faith in Jesus, and when we avail ourselves of prayer and of God's word, God miraculously and graciously conforms us to the image of Christ. We retain indwelling sin for as long as we live in this world, but our sin has now been mortally wounded by the work of Christ. 
and he will continue renewing us for as long as we live. And in times when we struggle with sin, Jesus' completed work allows us to fight it and to overcome it. Never let Satan deceive you into believing that you can't let go of a particular sin because it feels too important or somehow beneficial to you. If our sin had any redeeming quality, then Jesus would not have died to purge it. In fact, the reason that the new heaven and the new earth will be so full of joy and beauty and contentment is that there will be no sin there. The allure of sin always pales in comparison to the glory of Christ. As Christians, we have the blessing of superior joy in Jesus to push sin out of our lives. Which brings us to our third and final point. Beholding Jesus brings us joy regardless of our circumstances. Jesus supplies our single greatest need as human beings, our need for a savior. As D.A. Carson wrote in his book, A Call to Spiritual Reformation, if God had perceived that our greatest need was economic, he would have sent an economist. If he had perceived that our greatest need was entertainment, he would have sent us a comedian or an artist. If God had perceived that our greatest need was political stability, he would have sent us a politician. Good thing he didn't. If he had perceived that our greatest need was health, he would have sent us a doctor. But he perceived that our greatest need involved our sin, our alienation from him, our profound rebellion, our death, and he sent us a savior. As Carson recognizes, the single greatest treasure of Christianity is Christ himself. Our greatest need has already been satisfied in him. Following Jesus does not entitle us to money or popularity or a spouse or the job we ideally want, but it does entitle us to something far greater, persistent joy in the forgiveness of our sin and in the promise of eternal life in the world to come. As the Puritan minister Matthew Henry wrote, whatever God is pleased to take away from us, if with all he take away our sins, we have reason to be thankful and no right to complain. Apart from Jesus, happiness in this life is largely a byproduct of circumstances we don't control. When we have momentary wealth or popularity or fame or power, then life feels good. And when we lack these things at a given moment, life feels bleak or unfair. But when we trust in Christ and rejoice in his atoning work on our behalf, we come to recognize that these things are secondary and that true joy comes from worshiping Jesus and devoting ourselves to him regardless of our circumstances. This is what I want us to think about as we conclude. In times when we feel that we have failed in the eyes of the world, or in times when the things of this world don't satisfy us in the way we had expected or hoped, the best response we can have is to focus on Jesus. This is not just a pep talk. This is a theological and anthropological reality. God made us to live in communion with him and to enjoy his presence and his blessings. So when you feel depressed or weary about something that's gone wrong in your life, you can always join the psalmist in singing to God, my soul longs, yes, faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and flesh sing for joy to the living God. Blessed are those who dwell in your house, ever singing your praise. Or declare with the Apostle Paul, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Once we view Christ as our greatest treasure, 
we can then fully enjoy all the other good gifts that God provides. Behold the creator, and then you can enjoy his creation. Would you please join with me in prayer?